care and feeding of werewolves. Episode 7, The Hunt. Welcome to Care and Feeding of Werewolves, a podcast addressing issues and current events in the paranormal community. I'm your host, Hazel Thornton. Today's listener asks, I howl at the moon once a month, get extra cranky, and crave red meat. Am I a werewolf? If you're also craving chocolate, you're likely a human. If you change into a seven-foot-tall, hairy creature, then you're probably a werewolf. If it's neither of those, you may have latent werewolf genetics. Not enough to shift, but enough to set off certain instincts and cravings. Avoid biting anyone, just in case you have the ability to pass it on. Other than that, enjoy lunar barbecues. This is a public service announcement. You are far more likely to become the prey of the Fae than you are their lover. Yes, you. I don't care how pretty they are or how convinced you are that you're different. I assure you that you are not. I don't say this because I hate Fae, but the disnification and fetishization of Fae has done real damage. People, especially humans who are the most vulnerable, no longer recognize the danger that can be posed by these beings. If you don't have the proper respect and sense of self-preservation, you can kiss your ass goodbye. Not to mention the term fae is an umbrella term for many species, not all of which are cute little winged figures who wear flowers and ride mice. I swear, if they have a PR campaign, they certainly chose the right public image. There are protections, of course, such as iron, the bog standard against all types of fae, Herbal charms, like the four-leaf clover, can be hit or miss depending on their freshness and region of origin. For more specific defense, there are various spells, of course. And then there are true names, which are a double-edged sword. Learning them typically requires more interaction with the individual in question, and they really don't want anyone knowing their name because that's like living with a loaded gun to the back of your head. If there's no need to go scorched earth, then it's best not to escalate and create a true enemy where there is none. The most powerful among them are masters of illusion and enchantment, but they can still be formidable in other ways. I'm going to read an entry from the diary of one Philomena Marsden, dated May 8th, 1841. I relate the following misadventure solely in my diary, lest I find myself committed to an asylum. 
I must needs purge the memories of this harrowing experience to calm my agitated mind, which is as sound as it ever was, though I suppose that the very act of proclaiming my sanity to a construct of ink and paper casts suspicion upon my state of mind. Two nights passed. A restlessness seized me until I could lie abed no longer and determined that a turn about the neighborhood would calm me. Though I am a woman, I find no trepidation at night in the fields and forests that I frequent by day. The familiar woods I have oft traveled for many years could surely hold no terror. Why should the song of the humble frog be all the more fearsome underneath the stars than the sun? The hoot of the owl is no more alarming than the melody of the wren. Being of fine health, I enrobed myself with a good wool cloak and set out into the midsummer night without fear of miasma or fanciful ghosts. How foolish I was. The unveiled heavens above revealed the magnificence and secrets of the celestial spheres, but were soon hidden neath the crown of leaves of the woodland surrounding my estate. Wrapped in my own thoughts, I paid little attention to the path I wended twixt the towering giants of oak and elm. I am hard-pressed to say when the natural became supernatural, as there was no clear delineation any more than when the first rays of dawn begin to lighten the horizon. With each step, the labyrinth of trees grew exceedingly strange and dreadful. The gloom of the gloam chilled my spirit and dulled my wits. A weight grew heavy on my heart as I knew not which way to turn that would bring me safely home again, to the comforts of my warm bed and stout door to keep at bay the evil spirits I was certain dogged my every step. I avowed that never again would I eschew the pleasures of home and hearth for the melancholy and malevolence of deepest night. An intellectual might ascribe such phantasmagoria to an ill humor or a weak and unbalanced mind. Yet there is something of the animalistic need to survive in the human, no matter how scientifically inclined they might be, that recognizes danger no matter how hidden or unknowable. My feet wandered lost in stumbling between twisted trunks till I found myself in a glade lit with silvery moonlight. There, a woman fairer than any I have ever beheld sat upon a fierce mount. Her transcendental countenance was all I could behold. Her visage must surely have been sculpted by the divine, for Aphrodite herself would weep from envy. 
Her luminous eyes gleamed as if to rival the moon herself in the sky. Dark lips were drained of color by Luna's wintry light. Yet I knew roses would wilt with shame at their crimson hue. The raiment upon her lithe body was finer than any silk, yet coarse compared to the glory of her hair that flowed long and free. She wore no shoes, revealing dainty white feet. I was unworthy to witness such a personage in my torn and ragged nightgown and cloak, my own feet grubby and worn from traipsing about the countryside, my hair having long fallen from the braid I plait before retiring for the eve, tangled with twigs about my head, no doubt lending me the aspect of madness. Even her gigantic steed stood tall and noble. It resembled no earthly animal that I know of, with the sharp pronged antlers of a deer and the shaggy fetlocks of a draft horse over cloven hooves. The baneful eyes that regarded me were that of a goat. These disparate parts combined to create a whole that defied understanding while instilling in me the overwhelming urge to flee. Then she smiled, and though it held no warmth, she truly did outshine the heavens above. But her teeth were that of a wolf and never belonged in a person. Terrified, mesmerized, I prepared to fall to my knees to abase myself and beg forgiveness for disturbing her with my uncouth appearance. I quaked with emotions too varied and fervent to adequately convey. Her laughter was sweet and terrible, and yet I yearned for nothing more than to lay with her in some bower like Artemis and Callisto. I would weave garlands of violet to adorn her seemly brow, and feed her milk and honey to sate her hunger. To feed her soul, I would pen odes to her loveliness. By night, on soft beds, I would satisfy her desire. I gave pause as the shadows about her began to take the form of ghostly hounds with eyes that glowed like coals and fangs as long and as sharp as daggers. Horror arose within me as I knew then that this was no vision of love before me. No, her disposition was cruelty and not affection. She was sleek and merciless, her passion wild as she drew a wicked saber. In my haste, I knew not which way I turned and fled through a thicket of brambles, 
the thorns grasping at me as if in collusion with the huntress. Every vine was a hangman's noose, each branch a hand as all of nature turned against me. A cry from her horn summoned companions who seemed to come from every compass point. Their fiendish howls froze the marrow in my bones. The hooves of their mounts thundered upon the earth, louder than even my own heartbeat that filled my ears. The braying of her hounds gave voice to an entire legion of devils, each hungering for my lifeblood. They seemed to draw ever closer, yet I dared not glance behind, lest I misstepped and fell. An arrow pierced the hem of my cloak, doing no physical harm, though I feared my heart would burst in my chest. I have never much been one for the hunt, for I am too soft-hearted towards the prey. Never again can I give chase to a hapless creature for my own amusement. I greatly doubt that I shall ever hear the horn without remembering that host of shadow beasts snapping at my heels, sure that at any moment those jaws would sink into my flesh. I surely would have died had I not spied a minor path at the crest of a hill wreathed with great stones that would not permit entrance to my pursuers. As I crept along a narrow ledge, the earth gave way to send me tumbling down, and like the proverbial Jack and Jill, I struck my head upon some obstacle. Consciousness abandoned me then, and I feared that would be my end. I woke not in my own grave, nor my bed, but on the dew-damp grass below a gnarled oak. In the faint light preceding Aurora's debut, I made my way home without observation and thus avoiding any awkward questions as to my nocturnal activities. I would have dismissed these proceedings as foolish fantasies fueled by moonlight and indigestion. However, two days hence, the wound continues to mar my brow. Scarlet scratches wind about my legs, and the hole in my cloak remains. I know no more of the events that eve, and that lack weighs heavily upon me. Was there no sport to be had in Senseless Quarry? Were there more challenging games to be found elsewhere? Such unearthly hunters were undoubtedly skilled enough to find me in spite of the winding passage that betrayed me. I cannot entertain such musings, lest I carry them beyond my desk in my preoccupation and become known for a lunatic. The mere notion that I am enamored of another woman would be sufficient to commit me to an asylum. 
that my lover is otherworldly would be yet more proof of my insanity. Perhaps reason has truly left me. Bread turns to ash in my mouth, and drink slakes not my thirst. I am mad, for I pine for a being that sees me as game, and I waste away for it. She haunts my dreams still, and though I yet flee, some part of me yearns to be caught, though I know I am but the moth to her cold flame. Would it be better to burn with my truth than to suffocate under a lie? The good neighbors, the fair folk, quaint euphemisms to render incomprehensible primordial powers feeble and toothless. The awful terror of that night was realizing the lie with which we comfort ourselves that we are the masters of the earthly firmaments. There are certain plants from tropical climes that lure insects into their maw and consume them. One chthonic beast has an appendage to entice fish into becoming a complacent meal. Rational beings are inclined to dismiss these victims as mere animals, for mankind is too enlightened to be duped by base appearances. Yet, did not Troy and Achaea war over the beautiful Helen? Atalanta did not lack for suitors, even though she beheaded those who failed to best her in a race. Many lusted after Artemis and paid dearly for their insolence. Logic and reason will oft retire in the face of grace. Be not enthralled by a beauteous mien, lest you too become prey. There are any number of reasons why Ms. Marsden lived to tell the tale. She might have left the region where the wild hunt was at its strongest. They didn't consider an unconscious victim fair game. Or they may have simply lost her trail or their interest. In time, she may have recovered from her encounter, but some who are elf-struck never improve and waste away. In the tales of fairy rings and graceful elven queens, the wild hunt has been all but forgotten. Most accounts of them read much like this one, but naturally, they're written by survivors. And those who have been whisked away to Fairyland and return are never the same again. I know that it's cool to fantasize about escaping from the dreariness of capitalism, but indentured servitude is not an improvement. Then there are the stories of people forced to dance themselves to death or talented musicians compelled to perform until their fingers bleed. If you aren't cautious, you could come to regret it. 
In other news, if anyone knows of a halfway home for paranormals, please let us know. I have a person dropped off on my doorstep after spending a hundred years in ferry and needs a safe place to adjust to the modern world. A safe place that is preferably not my spare room. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was written and performed by Brenna Anderson Dowd. Sound design by Frederick Elmore. Music by Kevin Elmore. Special thanks to Mona Roderick. Please rate and review. Find us on Facebook at Care and Feeding of Werewolves. Tweet us at CareWerewolves or email us at FeedingWerewolves at gmail.com. Care and Feeding of Werewolves is a podcast distributed by Kerfuffle and Chaos Productions and licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution share-alike 4.0 international license. All content on the Care and Feeding of Werewolves podcast is fictional and for entertainment purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of an episode. Reliance on any information provided by Care and Feeding of Werewolves, Kerfuffle and Chaos Productions, or anyone involved with the production of this podcast is solely at your own risk. I don't know why I even bothered with this warning, since y'all are just going to ignore it anyway, because you think living in a damp cave and eating twigs and mushrooms is a great idea.